Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. How are you this morning? I am fine. I'm ready to go, actually. Ready to go, I think. Really? What yeah. are we going to talk about? I was really struggling for uh, topics I went, this morning. I went to the cinema yesterday and spent three and a half hours watching the new Martin Scorsese film. So we could talk sure. about that if you want. I honestly think that uh, maybe it's not the day. I mean, was it good? It was all right. A bit long, to be honest. I think any film that's three and a half hours long could possibly be a TV series. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's, a, there's a lot to get into. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll curtail our... Nonsense. Oh, talk there, shall we? <laughs> yes, let's. Let's. There is a lot to get into. Uh, you know, the, it feels like we almost need to do this in two sections, you know, because... We always do every week, Andrew. The first, we sort of talk about the game. Ah, yeah. And then the second one, we have questions. Right. So no, no problem. Okay. We're used to this then. That's fine. <laughs> no, what did you mean? <laughs> what I meant was that there is obviously a lot of focus on the officiating and decisions, and then there's also focus on the actual football. And yeah. Not I know a great deal. <laughs> no, but uh, but I do I, I do think it's worth talking about. You know, I think there are things that we need to sort of not lay bare, but but to talk about in a in the context of the decisions that we saw from the officials as well. So you know, we'll try and do it, but it's um, the focus is very much on the officiating. The focus is on VAR, and the focus is on decisions that were made and not made in this game. And I think we kind of have to start there in order to to sort of get it out of the way. And I know that Arsenal have made a statement, and perhaps we'll deal with that in part two, because I do have a, a couple of questions about that specifically. 
But let's sort of go from the top here. There was a a, a late surprise, if you want to call it that, in terms of the team. Martin Odegaard, who we all expected to be involved, wasn't. From what we understand, it's not related to his brief cameo against West Ham the other night. This is something that, that happened in training. He wasn't available, which meant that Kai Havertz started where Martin Odegaard would usually start, and Eddie and Keddie started up top. I mean, I think it probably would have been Eddie up top and Havertz on the bench if Odegaard had been fit, do you think? I think so, mm. yeah. But uh, yeah, Havertz kind of was doing Odegaardy stuff, playing on that right-hand side of the midfield three, joining Eddie in kind of a 4-4-2 when Arsenal didn't have the ball and mm. pressing from the front. He had an eventful day, actually, Kai Havertz. He certainly did. I mean, before we get into all that, before I think it, it sort of starts with him in a way, one of the things that I think we should talk about in terms of, of the football is how well Arsenal controlled the the temperature of the game until it all heated up, right? Mm-hmm. That that when you go to Newcastle and it's 5.30 in the evening and everyone's been on the beers and it's a, you know, a raucous crowd, as we know, at the best of times, I think it's important for you as a team to be able to quiet them down. And we did that. You know, Newcastle, as you would expect, tried to start very brightly, but... Arsenal with Declan Rice, with William Saliba, um, with the way that we were set up in this game, sort of quieted Newcastle down. Like they didn't have a lot going on from uh, an attacking perspective. And I think we were solid, mature, if not necessarily creative in those, uh, you know, in the first half. And it did dampen the atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how well you remember this fixture last season. Uh, mm. a fixture that we won in the end. But the first 15 minutes, uh, mm. Arsenal were heavily under fire, you know, and, and might have been a goal or two or three down um, in the first 20 minutes of the game. It was pretty intense and they flew out the blocks and, you know, we had to hang on a little bit in that period. Uh, I remember Aaron Ramsdale making a couple of big interventions um, the penalty thing, yeah. A penalty thing, exactly. So I, I think you're right to point out how well Arsenal controlled this early period. And I, I actually think the first half in general, Arsenal would have been very, very, very satisfied with it. I mean, they restricted Newcastle to barely an effort on goal. Mm. They're an intensely physical team, Newcastle, and they play right on that line between you know, of where the rules kind of extend to. And I think there was a period certainly where Arsenal, you know, in recent years might have struggled to live with that. And I think this iteration of the Arsenal team is better equipped to deal with that sort of game than any we've had for quite a long time. And to say that on on a day where Thomas Partey's not there, Gabriel Jesus isn't there, um, I think Mm. tells you about the way we've kind of evolved physically. Um, you know, that triangle of Gabriel, Saliba and Rice Oof. does provide immense solidity, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I think Rice and Saliba in particular were excellent throughout this game. Gabriel was a bit shaky in this fixture for me, uh, and we can talk about him uh, in a little while. But there were moments in that first period of the game where, you know, despite the fact Arsenal, you know, might look back at this and, and say we didn't create quite as much as we should have, I think we look by far the more threatening team 
There was a brilliant run from Declan Rice, if you remember, right through midfield when charging forward. There was a chance for Bakayo Saka to hit it with his right foot, which normally I think he would do, but he cut back in on his left foot. It, it got uh, it got cleared away. And, you know, it was competitive. It was difficult. It was physical um, without either team going uh, close to scoring a goal. There were a couple of moments. I don't know if you noticed this on, on the TV. There was one when Declan Rice appeared to be complaining quite vigorously about something that happened in the penalty area. We didn't see a replay of that. And then there was one when Kai Havertz went down holding his face. And they didn't show a replay of that either. I went back to look at it in, in real time, the real time footage. It's one of those where um, he's competing for the ball. It's Bruno Guimaraes who's there with him. You know, it's 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 sort of one of those where it's very difficult to discern whether or not this is deliberate, where a player sort of throws his arm out. Is he protecting the ball? Is he protecting himself? Or is he throwing an arm back to hurt the opponent? Given it's him, you'd have to say it's 50-50, you know, uh, considering what he, what he did next. And then there were a couple of fouls on Bukayo Saka from Dan Byrne, which went, we got free kicks for them, but they weren't punished with cards. Then... There's the Kai Havertz moment, the tackle on on Sean Longstaff. Um, do you think perhaps that the whack in the face that he got, the fouls on Saka, the fact that we are playing against a very physical team informed his decision to go absolutely steamy in on Longstaff there? <laughs> I think all of those things probably contributed. I think you could as well describe it as a a forwards tackle. Mm-hmm. I know he's playing in midfield <laughs> ostensibly, but looked very much like a striker's tackle to me. I, I remember seeing Thierry Henry, you know, lunging in like that on more than one occasion. Um, I th- probably the first time in his Arsenal career, Kai Havertz has been compared to Thierry Henry, so Quite. it'll be delighted with that. And, and the last, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a slow start. But, um, I think there's a lot of needle between these two teams. Um I mean, I feel like Newcastle is a sort of team where they probably have that relationship with every team they play because they are quite needly as a group. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there is a bit of history there. I think particularly that nil-nil draw at the Emirates Stadium last season seems to have created some ill feeling, I think, between the two benches, the two camps more broadly. I also just wonder as well, like had, had Kai Havertz been given a pep talk before the game, you know, Martin Odegaard's missing today. You're playing in his position. He's our captain. This is going to be a hard game. We need you to show some aggression, to put yourself about. You never know, right, what a player is mm. told going into the game. I, and actually, I think it was reckless. I think he was. He took a huge risk. And in some respects, I think he was lucky um, that he didn't make more contact. But... I'm also not going to kill him for it because I've sort of been saying what what worries me about Havertz is that I haven't seen that kind of aggression on the field. I know not all players require aggression to thrive, but I just mean some sort of sense of him kind of uh, putting his foot down and, and trying to dig in and, you know, make things happen for himself. I know lunging to a tackle is not maybe the best expression of that, but I did sort of at least appreciate sure. a little bit of oomph in his game, if that makes any sense. It does, yeah. I, I, I'm with you on the you know, the fact that it was reckless and he was lucky. I, I do think he was lucky, and I've watched it again a number of times. The the timing of it is such that if he's um 
you know, a little bit quicker into that challenge. He's probably catching that guy studs up on the ankle and absolutely uh, flooring him. And, and it's a, it's yeah. a red card. I yeah, think. He's, he's lucky he mistimed it, basically. <laughs> yeah, and as it is, like, you know, I can, uh, I've had like Newcastle fans in my mentions all weekend, as you might imagine. Uh, and I think it's worth saying that for a team that really likes to dish it out physically, they get very fucking pissy when someone gives them anything back. You know, mm. they're big crybabies in that sense. You know, it's it's all well and good being the hard man and throwing the elbows and all the rest. But then, you know, if you're going to dish it out, you've got to expect a bit back. I think he's lucky, but it is a yellow card as as far as I'm concerned, because he doesn't make contact with that um, with that first leg. There was actually a moment, wasn't there, in the, um, in the second half where he went sliding in. And, you know, that was potentially a second yellow card. I think yeah. that uh, one. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I was a little bit surprised that Arteta left him on. I think it- I wasn't surprised he left him on, but I'm I'm surprised that there wasn't like whatever the fuck you do, don't make another sliding challenge, because if you get it wrong, you're off. And like it was one of those where there was a, was there three players involved, and I think. Uh, an Arsenal player, what could have been Saliba, who won the ball, and um, you know we got away with it in that sense. But I was surprised that he, you know, still went to ground in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, you know, in the interest of sort of fairness and balance, I, I could have a, a, a debate with someone about the initial challenge from Havertz, and someone saying, "Well, look, it doesn't matter if he arrives, if he makes the contact or not. The recklessness is problematic in itself." And I, I would. You know, I'd, I would happily listen to someone make that case. Mm. I think in the in the under the laws as they currently stand, it was a yellow card. Um, but it, I suppose it sort of inflamed the game, didn't it? I mean, Newcastle really reacted to it, and I think <laughs> some of their heads went, particularly for, Bruno Guimaraes, for sure. I mean, whatever you say about the challenge, the rights and the wrongs of it, and whether it was silly or daft or or reckless. The fact that it got four Newcastle players booked yeah, worth was, it very, was very funny. You know, you don't often see that. You don't often see like a flurry of yellow cards, one after the other after the other, you know, where, where they're just moaning at the referee. Um, <laughs> maybe we should be giving Kai a bit more credit. That's his so. plan all along. Master plan. Unfortunately, it didn't translate into uh, a second yellow for any of those Newcastle players. However, there most definitely should have been a red card for Bruno Gimaraes, who, like you said, I think he did lose the head. He was charging around. He went jumping in on Ben White. It was one of those where I think Ben White saw him coming and you know moved the ball quickly and got out of the way, but he went absolutely steaming in. Uh, and I don't know that he was necessarily looking to, to win the ball there. Got up and hit... Jorginho in the head with his forearm as he's running by. The ball is not in, you know, in the vicinity in any way. And it is by the very definition of the term violent conduct. So there is obviously a lot to talk about in the second half when it comes to the goal and all the rest of it. But for me, this is the big one. This is the most egregious error, mistake, whatever you want to call it, but I struggle, you know, and here we are a couple of days later, I I struggle to understand how people who are trained and well-versed in the laws of the game can look at that and 
not deem it violent conduct? Like, what do you think happens if they stop play there and tell the referee to go look at the screen? He gives a red card because, you know, the ref on the on the pitch can't see it because play is moving too fast. And it's a sort of like a it's a drive by assault, isn't it? By by Bruno Gimaraes. Like mm-hmm. he just sort of whacks him and carries on and Jorginho's left in a heap. It's it's a red card, violent conduct. I don't understand how they are sitting there in the booth in uh, where fucking whatever Poxley Park it is. And they they I think it is Poxley Park. Poxley yeah, Park. And they they like what is their rationale? The what we got on Sky was like, oh, it's the forearm and not the elbow. And they that weirdly accepted that they went ah yeah maybe yeah yeah they're right there I mean what if you get a, an elbow in the face or a forearm in the face I'm not sure you're that fucking worried about which part of the body that hit you because it's gonna hurt. It's I, I agree with you. I think uh, this is the one that I have the most trouble yes understanding. It, it's it's just ludicrous. It's absurd. And actually, it was interesting. I've got a mate Simon who's a Newcastle fan and he was saying look Bruno does this like his his he sees red in games <laughs> ironically not red cards but mm. red mist um and that's exactly what happened here he he just lost control and I'm just staggered that that wasn't a red card I, again I thought I agree with you the sky explanation was absurd really to kind of say well look if it's not the elbow it's okay um, he should have gone for it and a complete, a really, really, really shocking decision. Mm. I, think. I think I was really shocked by that. Do you, uh, what, what do you think of the idea that, um, you know, the, the VAR officials perhaps were protecting the referee by not giving that? Decision. Maybe I mean, I, I mean that's why I'm struggling to to understand what their their reasoning might be. Two experienced match officials who are looking at that and and somehow can't bring themselves to tell the referee that this is violent conduct. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get into the goal yet because we'll get into that in its own right. But I can at least in that situation see that there was a lot to deal with and achieve and break down on that particular incident with this it's very clear cut you're looking at one angle of one incident and it provides absolute clarity that Bruno Guimaraes comes over and forearms a guy in the back of the head I mean are they protecting him perhaps I think that's one explanation um are are the video assistant referees like on-field referees subject to things like home bias, perhaps. Rationally, it's very difficult to explain. Mm. Um, It's just a a really, really, really terrible decision because, you know, there's so much about football that is subjective, right? Yeah. So much. And we all understand that. And I think we all try as much as possible to at least factor that into our thinking and how we react to the way decisions are made, whether we agree with them or not. You can hold your hands up and say, well, mm, I can see maybe, maybe not in certain decisions. But when you forearm somebody in the back of the head, there's no subjectivity to that. There isn't any. It's like, 
who was sent off the other week for he retaliated with somebody and he just sort of put his head forward very slightly. Mm. I can't remember who it was. But you see that. Like, you know, uh, Granite Xhaka getting sent off for putting his hands on the throat of the Burnley player a few seasons back. Do you remember? The choke slam. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's one of those where he just sort of grabbed him very... Uh, yeah, there are certain know, things I, you can't do. Exactly. And everybody... And maybe running up and hitting a guy over the back of the head <laughs> is one of those things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it absolutely is that there is no subjectivity. What did your mate Simon say about that one? Was he like, you know? Maybe. No, no, he yeah. said he's lucky to get exactly. Away. exactly. He said he's lucky to get away with it. Uh, uh, you know, it, that's clear as day. And and obviously, it's a game changing decision. I think as as much as goals obviously are defining. Losing a man, losing a player mm. at that point in the game with so long to go may well have been defining. And, you know, we will talk about the performance and we will talk about the pattern of the game and everything that followed. But it has got that big asterisk against yes. it. Yes. Because if they go down to 10 men, it's a completely different match. Correct. And, and I, yeah. Yeah, against Manchester City, we should have been facing 10 men. And in the end, you know, we got the break and we got the goal. And you're sort of able to set that to one side. Mm. But that was kind of unusual in that respect, you know, that we yeah. managed to overcome uh, a poor officiating decision. On this occasion, it has really cost Arsenal. And, yeah, I know I know that Mikel Arteta, for understandable reasons, really focused on the goal. But I, I think this is mm -hmm. the, the worst of the lot. I agree. Completely. And I do think there's a lot about the goal that's bad too, but this is, it's inexplicable and inexcusable. There's no good reason for any um, professional official to, to ignore what is obvious violent conduct in the game. Just mm -hmm. no excuse. And it's not good enough and it shouldn't be acceptable. I doubt we're going to get an apology given that we've come out with a statement and all the rest of it. You know, Howard Webb is just tucking we're it into his envelope. List, yeah, yeah. I that, think. He's ripped that up now. You can stick your <laughs> apology. You've been so mean to us. It was him and all the rest of the PGMOL. It was, it was Howard Webb dressed as Father Christmas and all the rest of the PGMOL as elves. And they all posed <laughs> for a photo for their annual Christmas card. And we're not going to get that anymore. Oh. What a shame. What a shame. Before we get to the goal, there were moments in the second half. I mentioned the Havertz um, sliding challenge that he kind of got away with. There was a bit, wasn't there, where Joe Linton whacked Havertz on the sideline, uh, if you remember, um, I think trying to provoke a reaction, trying to provoke some retaliation. It was a, yeah. a fairly obvious foul. And there was a chance as well, you know, where Declan Rice, we had a good move and Declan Rice ended up um, heading just wide from... Head just wide from distance. Um, yes, it was a good move. Martinelli got to the byline and I think Trippier headed it away. Mm. And it, it's a difficult one for Rice, you know, heading it from the edge of the box. Um, but yeah, went wide. I, just on the Havertz thing, I, I do think that he managed that situation pretty well because I think everyone on the pitch and in the stadium was probably aware he was close at several points to a second booking and Newcastle were really in his face. Yeah. Um, and he, I, I quite liked the way he sort of laughed a lot of that off. Uh, mm. You know, I, I enjoyed, yeah, you know, maybe I think he was rash and reckless with that challenge in the first half, but I think he was relatively cool 
through the rest of the game. And I, I did like that aspect. Of yeah, we did. Have, we did have some questions, which I don't think I'm, I'm going to do about whether this was Havertz's best performance for Arsenal, because I think it's not really a huge talking point. But, I, you know, I think it, there's a shout for that. It did sort of, you know, there were signs of life, if that's the right way exactly of putting it, that. you know. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that's something that we can um, that we can build on or he can build on then. Thank God he didn't get a red card, by the way. Yeah, I know. I was like... Standing among the fans, you know, would have been really oof, tough and, and difficult for him mm. had he done. So I was relieved as well that he did not. So look, the goal then. Newcastle made a change. It brought Joe Willock on uh, and Jacob Murphy came on and pretty much straight away they scored. There's so much to unpack in this goal. So I want to try and do it in a fair way. Okay. So I think that defensively we were found wanting on this goal. I think I agree with you. Gabriel should clear that ball before it even gets into the box. I know he's under a bit of pressure, but he kicks fresh air, right? Not good. I think we switch off assuming that the ball is going to go out of play and when the ball is kept in play, and I say in play in inverted commas because that's obviously an area of contention. We'll get to that. We didn't do enough to stop the cross. Like Jorginho was shouting at Ben White to go out and close him down and he didn't really move and that's not good. And I also think that it looks bad for David Raya where the cross Mm -hmm. goes right over his head. You know, whatever about the positioning at the near post when maybe he's the the first man there, when you've got defenders in front of you, I I do think as a goalkeeper, you need to be closer to the center of your goal in situations like that. And I know that's what he does, and maybe that's the way he's been coached. And if so, maybe there's questions to be asked there as well. But it doesn't look good for him when the ball goes over his head. So that is our uh, part in that. Those are the things that we could have controlled and didn't control well enough. Uh, so I'm with you on all of those. And I, I don't know if Ben White had just chased a long way back, but I think he really was guilty of assuming that's running out of play. Mm. I mean, maybe it did. Um, but I think you've obviously you've got to play to the whistle and I think he could have done more to get out there. I think you're right with Gabriel with the clearance uh, initially. And I think the positioning thing on Raya is really interesting because obviously positioning aggressively at the near post, I think, helps him a lot of the time, enables him to come out and claim stuff and catch stuff. And it, it's probably got some sort of tactical basis. It, it clearly is instruction because he does it all the time. I just think we might be in a situation where teams are aware of that. Yeah. You know, when, when Mudrick scored, that was a complete fluke. But he did say in his interview, oh, the coaching staff said, you know, watch how... Mm. how much he's on at the near post for crosses. And it's a really good cross from Joe Willock, but it's a lifted cross to the back post. Um, and if you were an opposition analyst, you'd be saying, well, lift your crosses to the back post, guys. Yeah. Because Raya stood there on the near post and he's good at catching them. So, yeah, I, I actually thought, like, on the ball, he had a really good game. But I just think that's an interesting point moving forward. And I wonder if the coaching could be tweaked on that potentially. Right, so then there are the other moments, the other bits of this. The ball in or out of play, I I can't say. It looks out to me. It looks out, but 
I can't conclusively say 100% that that ball is out. Is it a failing of Premier League and their technology that they can't definitively say one way or the other that a ball is out when it goes over the end line? Yes, it is. And and I think, you know, we have to be honest and say, it's not like we've been sat here on this podcast every week saying, well, we must have yeah. technology <laughs> for if the ball goes out for a goal kick or a throw in or a corner. Mm. It's only, it almost requires an incident like this. And there was one with Manchester United the other day as well to kind of be the catalyst for that change. Mm. But sitting here now in the cold light of day, it does seem, given the resources available to Premier League clubs, to the league itself, it does seem absurd that that's not in place. Yeah. When you have goal line technology, which can tell you if the whole ball has crossed that line where the net is, why not implement that elsewhere? It's a completely objective thing. We've seen it done very successfully in sports like tennis, cricket. Uh, It's entirely doable and it would remove that doubt. Mm -hmm. So, yes. And and I I know a lot of people are sharing a screen grab of a ball where they can see that there is some grass between the bottom point of the ball and the line, but that is not sufficient evidence. I I agree. You know, that's the the, the ball being over the line is the least irritating one for me because... But, But it can be fixed and it should be fixed. I agree. Um... Then, I mean, it, it feels redundant to talk about whether it's handball or not. I, you know, I can't say. It they feels, checked for three things, right? Yeah, they didn't check for handball. They checked for offside. I, I, My gut feeling tells me it's offside. But my uh, my main bone of contention with this particular goal is the foul on Gabrielle. And I think it is a foul. I think it's a foul... Everywhere on the pitch, if you put two hands in the back of an opponent, it is a foul. And they had the angles, they had the technology, they had the pictures to be able to see that. And I think that is a big mistake from PGMOL. I think it's foul as well. I think it's a foul as well. My best guess, and maybe we will hear this audio one day. I I don't know. I doubt it. (laughs) But... I wonder if once they realised they didn't know if that ball was out of play, I'd, I wonder how kind of chaotic that sort of period of them trying to figure out whether or not to give this goal was. Yeah. Like, I wonder if they just sort of lost their shit and panicked in that period. I mean, it wouldn't be a surprise. We've, you know, we've, well, you we've know, seen it and heard it happen. Yeah. We've heard before. Yeah. And, and I, th- I have this gut feeling that their lack of clarity on that initial point threw them into a flap um and that's why we saw this sort of strange prolonged protracted period of effectively indecision non-decision um we we may discover i mean i I, i'm with you it's a foul i think it is important like because For us to have credibility talking about this, I think we have to try and be as objective as we can. And I think we have to recognise that you can't disallow a goal cumulatively. Do you know what I mean? Correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the ball was maybe out and he was maybe offside and it may be a foul. Therefore, 
Yeah. Don't give it. But the foul is the one. Like, the foul is the one where Arsenal have the, the strongest case. Agree. I mean, the the images that have uh, emerged after the game where you can clearly see he's got two hands on the back of Gabriel's neck, whatever about Gabriel's position, right? Yeah. That maybe it's not ideal. And he is, I think, kind of stooping to try and head that ball away because it's come over Raya. Raya has missed it. The ball is falling. It's not like he has to leap to the top corner to try and head it away yeah. from going in, right? On his way in that direction, I think, which I think may have influenced the VAR, mm. but... I'm with you that personally, I think it is a foul. Now, obviously, what's happened here is that VAR have determined that it's not sufficient to overturn the goal, right? They've mm. not deemed it to be a clear and obvious error. Um, but I mean, that's, you know, that terminology drives me crazy at this point. A foul is, it's either a foul or it's not a foul. If the ref hasn't seen the foul, fine. But you're sitting there, yeah, but as I said on Twitter afterwards, how could you have any faith in these guys coming to the right decision in that situation after they had done what they'd done in the first half with Bruno? Well, that's, that's a fascinating question. Like, if, if we're in an alternative reality where Bruno was dismissed on a VAR review and then this goal was allowed, I, you know, how different would Arsenal's reaction be? And how different would our reaction be? And how different Mikel Arteta's reaction be? But but I have huge sympathy with Mikel Arteta because <laughs> much as I say you can't disallow a goal cumulatively, you can look at a series of decisions cumulatively over a course of a game mm. and feel like that doesn't represent justice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, listen, like I, I can live with this goal more than most. Like I say, for me, the real egregious one is the Bruno one. But I do think there is this kind of issue of when you set a high bar for VAR intervention, so, you know, which they clearly did by not sending Bruno off and, and clearly, you know, that what they determine is a clear and obvious error. They're looking for quite a high bar there. The problem is you've got a sport where goals have so much weight, like awarding that goal to Newcastle is so big now in the context of not just a game, but a season, millions of pounds. It's almost contradictory. It almost feels like you need to be sure. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I know we want to see goals given. We want to see attacking football rewarded, but at nil-nil to give that goal, you're kind of deciding the game. Sort of, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, I guess the... The Newcastle fans will have looked at that in maybe the same way we looked at some of the goals last week, um, where they checked for um, was it a handball? I think for the Tommy Asu one, and then they were yeah. checking for a foul on the keeper for the Eddie and Keddy, the second Eddie and Keddy a goal. Like to my mind, they were trying to find a way to disallow that those goals. <laughs> Yeah. Right, and I'm sure that that's what the Newcastle fans were thinking about this. They're trying to find any way they can to disallow this goal when, in actual fact, they ignored one very good reason not to give the goal, which is the obvious foul on, on Gabriel. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think Newcastle were very, very fortunate in this game 
very fortunate. Fortunate not to be down to 10 men and fortunate to get the goal that they did, which turned out to be the winning goal. I think this was a better Arsenal performance in some respects than the one last season where we well, won this game. Well, yeah, so, I mean, that, that that's where I was going to go next and talk about, well, A, you know, what happened between the goal and the end of the game, which wasn't a lot, unfortunately, from an attacking mm. perspective from Arsenal. But, you know, this is where I think you you have to have to maybe you can choose not to if you don't want to but i do think discussion of our performance on the night is inextricably linked to the decision not to send bruno off because you know we we scored a good goal last season at St. James's Park. Martin Odegaard scored the goal. And then the second goal was an own goal. And there were a couple of moments actually in the second half where there were low crosses from the left-hand side, not dissimilar to where Martinelli crossed it last season. And I think it was Fabian Schaar who put the ball in his own net. This time Newcastle defended. There was one from Kai Havertz. There was one from Zinchenko. There might've been one from Martinelli as well, where those sort of fine margins exist, where this time they got them clear. Last season, one went in the net and we had some daylight in the scoreline. When you look at the stats, and I'm not saying stats tell you everything, but you know we had more shots in this game. We had much more possession in this game than we did this time last season. So I think discussion of the performance can center around whether we did or didn't create enough. And I think we didn't, right? There's no question about that. We didn't create enough. We weren't incisive enough in the in the final third. I think part of that is missing players like Partey, Odegaard, Jesus, and maybe Emile Smith-Rowe, who on a night like this has uh, some of that ability to burst between lines when a defense is sitting deep, right? So I think that goes some way to explaining the lack of creativity, and maybe we can expect more from some of the players that we have out there. But the margins are so fine that when you try and assess the entirety of a game, you can acknowledge that we didn't do enough, but I think it has to be viewed through the prism of the fact that if we had played against 10 men for 45 minutes, we probably would have made more than we did. And I know that's a, if my auntie had balls, she'd be my uncle situation and all the rest of it, but it's very hard to escape that. I think that's certainly true. I'm sure that's true. Um, I mean, I did find myself quite, it's interesting because there was a lot about the performance I really liked Mm. and, you know, defensively we were really good. I think we were missing players, but we've got to acknowledge that Newcastle are missing a number of key players as well. Um, you know, particularly someone like Isaac in attack mm-hmm. who gives them another dimension. But we really restricted them to almost nothing, you know, but for the instant that, that led to the goal. Um, equally, I felt like for the possession that we had and the territory we had, almost particularly in that final 20 minutes or so, yes, Newcastle are a good defensive team. I would have liked to see us create a little more. Even on the set pieces, you know, we had about a yeah. dozen corners and made nothing of them. And how many times we've spoken this season about for a team like us at this point in time, set pieces become really important because teams defend deep against us and space is at a premium. Um, And I think as well, maybe I'm also seeing it slightly through the prism of the West Ham game where again, creativity and actually converting possession into chances was a bit of an issue. Um, so, you know, I was a bit disappointed, I have to say, in that respect. Mm. And but, but I accept the point that 
you know, these, these big games are tight and they are decided by the finest of margins. I mean, look at our match with Man City as an example. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder how City felt at the end of that. You know, they probably felt like they'd contained Arsenal. We hadn't really created anything. They'd controlled the ball. In the last few minutes of the game, bounces off somebody's face and goes in the net. And that is enough sometimes. Yeah. Um, so that is sort of the nature of big games. I, I think I, I just would have liked us to see, I would have liked to see us create just one or two good chances, you know? Like mm. I, I think maybe the best was Martinelli in the at the end of first half stoppage time when he came inside and shot at Pope's near post. But beyond that, I, I would struggle to sort of, point out a, a good chance that we made what was there anything else you think he could have done in terms of substitutes or or system to try and and get that goal uh, you know his late talisman reese nelson didn't get off the bench at all uh, which is kind of unusual for a game like this where we need a, a late goal reese nelson has often been quite effective in in that sense but i suppose it might have required taking off somebody else. I think we also have to acknowledge the fact that the absences we have or had for this game left the bench looking very defensive or or there wasn't a great deal from an uh, attacking perspective. We had two goalkeepers on the bench, mm -hmm. which was a bit strange. I, I'm guessing Carl Hine travels as like a, a third man um, with the goalkeeping group and, you know... Uh, it was just easier to put him on there and then maybe take a, a young player up. I don't know how late that Odegaard injury. Maybe they lost Odegaard quite late. Yeah, in the day. I think that, my guess. that that would be my guess too. But Zinchenko came on, was all right, didn't do a great deal. Vieira came on, was all right, didn't do a great deal. Trossard, the corners drove me mad, I have to say. You know, for a guy of his technical ability to deliver like three or four bad corners in a row, not good enough, you know, in these circumstances, if we want to talk about tight margins or fine margins and and all the rest of it, I do think you have to acknowledge that when you do have chances from set pieces, your delivery has got to be better than we saw. I think that's true. I think some individuals weren't at their best. I think, you know, Bukai Saka, to me, wasn't uh, on his game. I think there were just a few moments in the match that sort of passed him by where his decision-making was unusually off um, and I think the absence of Gabriel Jesus is just enormous to be honest mm. in a game of this magnitude a game of this difficulty his ability to provide a focal point for the attack to combine with other players to introduce that element of chaos and creativity um, is very much yeah. missed when he's not there I think even more so than Martin Odegaard you know, his Jesus' absence is I think, what I would point to. I think that triumvirate, that, that missing triumvirate of Partey, Odegaard and Jesus is very difficult to, to deal with. It, it takes a lot away from your team, you know? Yeah. A lot of a lot of forward momentum, right? Because Partey is a guy who can play those passes between the lines. Who is he playing those passes to? It's Martin Odegaard. And if Martin Odegaard has time and can get between the lines, he can find the passes for, you know, Bukayo Saka, for Gabriel Jesus and, and all the rest, right? So I think it's it's difficult to deal without those guys. Um, there was something else I was going to say, and it's completely gone out of my mind. Um, 
I mean, the other thing is, you know, Newcastle oh, are... Yeah, I've got it. But you can... Go on. Oh, you've got it. Go on. Well, I was just going to say that, like, I know the result has a big impact on how we feel about a game, obviously, right? So you lose, and it's disheartening, and it's frustrating, and you can see the things that went wrong if you... Um, if you don't make enough chances and all the rest of it, it's sort of easy to lean into the things that we didn't do. But I do think there was a lot about this performance from an Arsenal perspective that was good, as you say. Like, if this game had finished nil-nil, like, not brilliant. But at the same time, we've gone to one of the most difficult places um, in the Premier League to go and basically stifled a Newcastle side who've been free-scoring. Like, they put four past PSG. Top they, scorers in the Premier League, yeah. I think, prior to this weekend. Yeah, they yeah. did have that big win, didn't they? It was the 8-0 over Sheffield United, yes. which I think has, has skewed that slightly. But they score a lot of goals, particularly at home. And I think a lot of what we did in this game, um, and this is perhaps why the award of that goal and the, the lack of red card feels so egregious, is that so much of what we did was good without having the final touch or the the the, the sort of cutting edge in the final third, right? So I think it's important to acknowledge that as well. Like I said in the the, the preview podcast on, on Patreon that we're a difficult team to beat. And we were beaten on Saturday by a goal that shouldn't have stood by a team that should have been down to 10 men. Mm. So I think we have to, like, I, there is a need to be both difficult to beat and a bit more effective up front, right? I think everybody accepts that. But in the cold light of day, perhaps when things have calmed down a bit, it is, I think it's important to to point out that we were good for most of this game without that attacking threat. And I got I really have to say, William Saliba and Declan Rice were outstanding in this game and it's difficult to talk about that when you lose you know it's difficult to um focus on some of the positives when you lose but Saliba from fucking start of this game they tried everything they could to get the ball off him and they just couldn't get anywhere near him they really couldn't and Rice you know a strong presence in midfield but also defensively as well he gave us something going forward um he's always in the right place defensively I think those two in particular on a day when perhaps the others around them didn't step up the way they should, those two deserve a lot of credit, even though we lost this game. Yeah, I agree. They're the two that I would have picked out. You know, the way you cope with a very physically intense team is not just by your own physicality, but it's by your technical level as well. Mm -hmm. And William Saliba's ability to do that, you know, to receive the ball under pressure and just kind of turn away from his man is so disheartening for the opposition. Yeah. Um, you know, Newcastle pressed really hard. And actually, when they played Brentford last year, they had quite a lot of success uh, against David Raya, like closing him down. I think they got a goal via that, that means. But I thought Arsenal, the, the back four, the goalkeeper, but particularly Saliba, were really, really good in that respect. I think they retained their composure. Um, and it just took the edge off the Newcastle team and enabled us to sort of manage the game. I do think defensively we are, were really good. I think defensively we are really good. Mm. I'm not sure I see a better team than us defensively in this division. Maybe City just by virtue of how well they keep the ball, but we are very, very, very good in that respect. I do think there are still questions about 
the attack and what we may have sacrificed to get to that point of solidity. Um, but I accept that Newcastle away, St. James's Park, is, you know, maybe not the the best time to talk about that. Mm. It's not a game where you're ever going to really create 10 golden opportunities. No, that's true. That's true. And if you end up on the wrong side of, you know, I think this goes a little bit to the point that you made in your video, that if you don't create enough, then you are... Um, it's possible that you can fall victim to a moment of madness or, you know, something crazy happening or a thunderbolt going into, which is fine. I mean, I get that. I get that. But I do think that there is, you know, the context of, of this game. So, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, think about Arsenal Man City the other day, like I said, mm. you know, these big games are settled on tiny things. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, it's really frustrating uh, but I don't think it needs to be a disaster either. I, I know that it's agree. annoying to lose the unbeaten record and, you know, it's three, it's, well, we haven't lost three points. Really, well, we might have done had Bruno been sent off, but in the end, the goal has cost us a point. I think, yeah, I don't think we did enough to deserve to win no. this game. When our, when Mikel Arteta spoke afterwards, and we'll talk about that a bit more in part two, but when he spoke afterwards and said, we've lost three points here, I was like, well, I get what you're saying, mm, but yeah. we didn't. We lost a point. Now, a point is still valuable, and I think it's a point that we absolutely deserved. And, you know, maybe on the balance of play, you could say it's a point that Newcastle deserved, but that's neither here nor there. It wasn't It wasn't three points lost. But, I, you know, I suppose part of, if I'm looking for a silver lining from this game, it is the fact that we went there and controlled it. And, you know, we weren't being pulled apart by a team that is very, very effective um, you know, in the final third, we didn't allow them to play the way they like to play. You know, we know how they like to play. And even though we had a lot of the ball, we controlled the transitions as well. Right. So when it did break down, we didn't see Newcastle um, charging forward bar that one moment that led to the goal, which of course shouldn't have stood for all the reasons that we've already talked about. Um, so I think there are, there are positives there. And I'm hoping that, you know, this can perhaps be used as a kind of um, fuel, you know, a sense of injustice can can sort of spur players on and, and really make them raise their game in the next game and the next game and the next game. And that 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 is the thing that, there's two things I think that I would take away from this game. One is that we could use the sense of injustice in a positive way, if that's, you yeah, know. It you're, could be you're, a galvanizing thing, hopefully. The other thing that I would say final observation before we take a break and go into part two is that in the absence of Gabriel Jesus for a game like this away from home, and I know he's far from perfect and all the rest of it, but if we have Martin Odegaard available, I think fixtures like this are Kai Havertz up front games more than Eddie and Keddie games. And again, I'm not saying Havertz is the be-all and end-all. I'm just saying for this kind of game, if you have the ability to play him up front, that is what I would do. And I think that's a little bit of a lesson from this game for me. Yeah, I'd like to see more of it. You know, um, we've seen it in the Community Shield. We've seen it in periods of games. Um, but I think there's definitely a time and a place for using Havertz there. Uh, and I would agree that this might well have been one. Um I don't know how much it would have changed from an Arsenal perspective, but we'll never know. But mm. I, I, yeah, I think he, 
I think he's definitely worth a shot. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I don't think there's anything else um, in terms of the game itself. There's the post-game stuff and the post-game reaction, which we will talk about. So let's take a little break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. So the game was the game. And then there was the press conference afterwards from Mikel Arteta. And I'm sure everybody's heard it at this point, but I'm just going to play a little clip of that right now. Yeah, we have to talk about the result because you have to talk about how the hell this goal um, stand up and it's incredible. I feel embarrassed, but I have to be the one now coming here to try to defend the club and please ask for help because it's an absolute disgrace that this goal is allowed. It's an absolute disgrace and it's too much at stake here. We put so much effort. It's so difficult to compete at this level and it's an absolute disgrace. Again, I feel embarrassed. I've been more than 20 years in this country, and this is nowhere near the level to describe this as the best league in the world. I am sorry. Um, pulling no punches, I think it would be fair <laughs> yeah, to say. Yeah, just a bit. There, that's, you know, I, some might say that's a man you know who's a sore loser and all the rest of it, and show me a sore loser, and I'll show you, show you a loser and all that. But, you know, subsequently, Arsenal have released a statement which said, 
Arsenal Football Club wholeheartedly supports Mikel Arteta's post-match comments after yet more unacceptable refereeing and VAR errors on uh, Saturday evening. Um, the Premier League is the best league in the world with best players, coaches, supporters, all of whom deserve better. PGMOL urgently needs to address the standard of officiating and focus on action, which moves us all on from retrospective analysis, attempted explanations and apologies. Um, there was a question. It was from Tim, actually. Tim Stillman. Um, so let me ask you, you know, you can give your own thoughts on the statement and Arteta, you know, if you want. But Tim's question is, is the club statement likely to have a negative impact? We can already see a media backlash, which may or may not be justified. And we know PGMOL's priority is colleague slash mate protection. Has this put a target on our backs now? So what do you make of A, Arteta's response, B, the club statement and, and what the fallout might be? Uh, I, I think Arteta's response is in his post-match press conference is absolutely fair enough and He's obviously incredibly frustrated. I think it's probably about more than just this one goal mm-hmm. or this one decision. I think it's important to say that, you know, that there's just kind of totting up of various incidents uh, over the last, I don't know, year or so. Um, I'm not sure what the statement adds, if I'm honest. I think it's just, I think it's fair enough that the club have come out and backed the manager. But I think everybody outside of Arsenal is going to roll their eyes at that statement. And I th- I can kind of understand why. Because I sort of think club comes out and says, we want decisions to go in our favour after a decision doesn't go in their favour. I mean, what does that signify, really? Mm. Um you know, I think for it to have real weight and real power and real credibility, clubs would probably have to be speaking out about things that didn't go against them, you know, or, or benefited them. I think that the Liverpool example, where they had the goal disallowed at Spurs, which was a purely objective thing that they managed to get wrong, um, I think had other clubs really come forward at that point in time and said, this is crap, then I think it would have carried more weight. I think as long as as it's your club coming out and saying something went against us and we're not happy about it, I just don't think it's going to carry much weight. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I, I I know what you're talking about and I'm not sure it's going to necessarily be a positive thing for us in terms of how we're refereed first off we're not getting that christmas card which is you know very a real sad. shame i mean very sad they went to such effort on the other hand though i do think that it is going to take clubs and managers speaking up and highlighting these egregious errors like the marginal calls the subjective ones you know, I don't think anyone's going to lose their reason over that because, you know, if you're in football, you're in football long enough, you understand that some some days decisions go your way, some days they don't. But when they're really, really obvious, like the Liverpool one, like the Bruno decision, like the Gabrielle foul, I have no problem with managers speaking up and speaking out because I feel like 
the standards of officiating are worsening. They are getting worse. And under Howard Webb, since he took over at PGMOL, there have been a litany of extraordinary mistakes and blunders and errors and countless apologies. Like, when was VAR introduced in the Premier League? Uh, I don't know, a few years ago, 2019, something like that, Right. Uh, Let me just look this up. When was VAR introduced? Premier League. Uh, The start of the 2019-20 season. Right, yeah. It feels to me, I could be wrong, but it feels to me that since Howard Webb took over, the frequency of these mistakes is increasing. And also the, how do I put it? The the sort of the size or the nature of these mistakes is, is just worse and worse, right? They're happening all the time now. Maybe it's because he's, you know, acknowledging them. I don't know. But if managers, if, if clubs, if players don't speak out about these things, what is ever going to change? I mean, the the unfortunate thing is, is like Arsenal are aggrieved this weekend, release a statement, and 19 other clubs and 19 other sets of fans go, ha, 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 tough shit, suck it up, you cunts, which I get, right? But then it'll be one of them next week, and they might release a statement, and it'll be a different club the week after, and they might release it, you know, that I do think the issue of refereeing standards has to be separated from the tribalism and the rivalries of football Ask me how that's done. I don't know. I, I honestly don't think that happens until Arsenal are given that goal and are prepared to say that was wrong. Not just Arsenal. I mean, any sure. club. I, I get I, it. I, I think until clubs truly kind of come together on this, which is really difficult because there's so much at stake and everyone has a vested interest and everyone has a bias. But until there's kind of a unified or at least majority voice on this, then uh, that tribalism is always going to undermine it. Sure. I mean, there was a, a bit in the Sky Sports interview after the game when Arteta was asked, are you going to take this up with Howard Webb or PGMOL? And he said, we've been taking it up with them for months. Yeah. And then he said, I don't, you know, in his press conference, I don't want to be in the hands of these people. Um. I think he just said people, but I think he dropped the word these, um, you know, that's what he meant. That this reaction from Arteta, he feel it feels very much to me like a guy who's completely at the end of his tether with the refereeing and with the officiating. And I'm sure he's not the only one. If I was Gary O'Neill, I'd be fucking going crazy uh, sure. over the last couple of weekends because of the penalties that were, were given against Wolves, right? And to be fair, I think he's... He's spoken out about that. But I I think it's also worth pointing out that we know Arteta hates losing. But when we lose, you know, the reaction from him has generally been pretty fair. Like sometimes he'll blame his players, as he did against West Ham during the week. He talked about not competing. He was angry with his players. Sometimes he'll um, blame himself. He'll take the responsibility himself. There have been plenty of times where he has not spoken about refereeing and refereeing decisions. And there are times where he'll just say we didn't play well enough. But on this particular occasion, he's had enough. Like the line has been crossed and he wasn't holding back and maybe it will be counterproductive. And maybe if you were um, 
being completely rational about it, you might not say anything, but I don't know that I can blame him in those circumstances for speaking out. And I don't think he should be punished for speaking out either, because it's not as if uh, he's just sort of taking umbrage with one small thing. Everybody could see, um, maybe Newcastle fans aside, but I think everyone can see that Arsenal were absolutely done over by the officiating in this game. And that was the difference between no points and a point. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm with you on that. I think Arteta's within his rights. I think what he said is absolutely fair enough. I think it's relatively out of character uh, and shows that his patience has basically <clears throat> worn thin. I, I just... It, and, and I'm actually fine with the club coming out and backing their man, you know, especially if he's going to get the book thrown at him, you know, stand by your manager. He's the most powerful person in the club. He's put himself out on a limb. The club have come and supported him. I get that. I just don't think it's going to affect any sort of change as a kind of isolated thing. To come back to Tim's question, is it going to hurt us? It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, Sir Alex Ferguson was never shy about criticising refereeing decisions, yeah. but it never seemed to hurt him. Um, you can kind of... Part of the reason managers do this, <laughs> and this is why I think it's slightly sort of false to sort of claim all we want is objective refereeing. I, I think managers come out and do this partly so that to try and work ref decisions in their favour. Correct. In the future a lot of the time. Correct. Which is within their, you know... That's their prerogative if they want to do that. I don't know if that's going to happen for Arsenal. I get the sense that Arteta is quite unpopular, maybe, within those circles. Look at the way that he's dealt with on the touchline. Look at the way his reputation there is kind of reported and written about. Uh, I don't think this is going to work for him in the way it has or did for Ferguson. But I hope I'm wrong. What do you think? I mean, it could go two ways, right? They could dig in, PGMOL as an organization. They could say that this is basically an attack on them and decisions might be made through that prism when when we're refereed, right? Um but the thing is, there are so many examples down the years of decisions that are strange and weird and bad and wrong against Arsenal. I don't really know how much worse it can get. So I don't worry about it too much from that perspective. If it gives an official or a VAR guy pause for thought next time he's making a decision in an Arsenal game, maybe it'll be worth it. Maybe it'll only happen once. Maybe it'll only happen next week against Burnley or something. I don't know. Before it all fades away and everyone forgets and football moves on and, and all the rest of it. Because, you know, uh, yesterday's, um, yesterday's news is uh, tomorrow's chip paper and all the rest, right? Do you yeah. Have, don't have, and, that, like, and that, I do think, is sort of partly the problem and the paradox of football is that everyone's professing that they want people to get decisions right but that isn't what they really want. Like everyone's got a vested interest. Mm. Everyone's got a bias. And it's so difficult to overcome that, that I, I just struggle to see how everyone's going to kind of end up on the same page. Um, 
I mean, the so irony maybe, of that is, sorry to cut across it, the irony of that is is that when on the very rare occasions we have seen football rivalries put to one side, it can be enormously effective. Think about the Super League. Yeah. And whether it was Chelsea or whether it was Tottenham or whether it was Manchester City or I don't know if Man City wanted, but, you know, Liverpool, all the rest of it, the, the outrage, the shared collective outrage of fans and, and the fact that this one thing brought disparate elements of, of fan bases together, it was hugely effective in seeing off the Super League. But in these decisions, you know, or in this situation, I, I don't think it's going to happen. No. Um, and by the way, of the of the two statements Arsenal put out yesterday, I was happier about the one they put out condemning uh, racist abuse that was sent to Bruno Guimaraes and one other Newcastle player after the game because that's just f- fucking awful and ridiculous mm. and yeah, uh, you know it shouldn't need to be said, but unfortunately, yeah, it still needs to be said. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm curious to see how this plays out now for Arsenal and Arteta. I mean, one thing I should say is that um, I do think that, as you know, I'm not really, I wasn't really a fan of the introduction of video technology. Uh, I still am not. Like if I could click my fingers and go back to on-field decisions, even though more would be wrong, I would do that because as a product, as a consumer, what horrible words, I prefer that. I prefer to watch that. But, um, I do think that in the technology era, and I think stats bear this out, more decisions are right than wrong. But I think that the problem that we have is that when you introduce that technology, you kind of have this promise of objectivity and correctness. And so subsequently, anything that deviates from that attracts much more scrutiny. Sure. Um and so that's why we get this like intense focus on these incidents. It's because we have a premise that's not being fulfilled. Um, I mean, can I can I ask you a question? We have another question here, and I do sort of yeah. want to move off this because you know we've we've talked a lot about it, but I, I think it's interesting when you talk about the introduction of VAR. If we could go back. You know, we, we'd probably be having discussions about when are we going to get video technology and all the rest yeah. of it, but. But for everything that's introduced, there are consequences or there's a sort of, you know, um, domino effect, if you like, right? So because VAR is introduced, we now have all this VAR-related, officiating-related hashtag content that comes out every week, right? Howard Webb has his own fucking TV show with Michael Owen in this sort of ridiculously fake way of demonstrating transparency at PGMOL when, of course... We all know that it's just a way for Howard Webb to get on TV, you know? Um, if they wanted to be transparent, they could be. We could all hear the audio if we wanted, the same way that, you know, the commentators hear the audio. They could release the audio immediately after the games. Basically, there are tools now where you can transcribe hours of audio in seconds, and it gives you a, a, an excellent transcription of what's happened. It's not difficult for an organization like PGMOL to be 
transparent if they want to be, but they don't want to be. But one of the things I think is is interesting, this is a question from the house on Neil Bolt Street, who's at Nesco on Twitter, said, lots of talk about officiating standards, but do you think punditry standards need to come under uh, just as much scrutiny, no consistency, out to protect themselves over the clubs and skewing every game with bias and narratives rather than genuine insight? And I mean to ask this question in, in the context of what you said about the introduction of VAR, is that there seems, it seems to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, The discussion about VAR is not in direct proportion to the amount of discussion we should be having about football and about the sport itself. That, That these incidents, these reactions from Arteta, from other managers, become far too... Uh, big in the narrative, if that makes sense. Um, and that that is sort of changing the way that football is covered on television and the uh, and the way that we are experiencing football as fans, whether you go to games or don't go to games, that your experience of, of the game, of the sport, is absolutely and inextricably linked to the introduction of VAR. Oh, there's a lot there. I mean, mm. the first thing I would say is that punditry is changing or has changed. You know, the idea 20 years ago was that a pundit effectively represented a neutral voice, you know, and was offering a kind of balanced critique. I think that has eroded. Mm. And, you know, we're part of that to an extent. I mean, obviously we're not sat there on Sky Sports, but we are uh, pundits with a bias or with a position or an affiliation. And that's, the popularity of work like that has now influenced television. So Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher are openly Manchester United fan, Liverpool fan. Um, It's part of the entertainment uh, model. You know, it's part of the theatre of these TV shows now. Um, It's been introduced, and again, a bit like they are, it will take quite some time to sort of squeeze that genie back into the bottle. I think that's here to stay, really, that people are partisan in their commentary Mm. about these events. So that, again, has a a say, you know, that generates a reaction which plays out on social media. You know, Gary Neville, I I think, is still tweeting this morning about incidents from the Newcastle Arsenal game. Of course he fucking is. it, It creates this sort of ongoing dialogue that does tend to dominate. I also think that one of the biggest lies in football is when people say, uh, I don't like talking about referees. Because <laughs> I think that as a culture, as football fans, I think we do like talking about referees. I think people really like talking about referees, a lot of people, because it's a convenient enemy. We'd all rather dislike this kind of abstract idea of PGMOL or, you know, the baddies in black. Um, I think that's kind of human nature. And so... You need the villain, the pantomime villain, the yeah, light to the darkness of. and all that. Yeah, something to fight against. And and I think... I'm not saying that they get everything right. I'm not absolving them. I think they, they're having a really bad season. I do think that. Um but I think that it is in our nature to kind of look for an external oppressor. And I think it's 
I think that that is kind of sort of fundamental part of the human experience. So I'm not sure we'll ever fully get away from it. And we can criticize TV companies for their coverage, but ultimately their coverage will be led by numbers. Like they will be delivering content that people seemingly want to consume. Sure, I get that. But isn't that the sort of the uh, the argument of the tabloid? We're just giving the people what they want. Yeah. When, you know, in reality, they could perhaps hold themselves to higher standards, like Jamie Carr yeah. and Gary Neville, who, you know, were both adamant watching the footage the other night that this is not a foul by uh, uh, Joe Linton on Gabrielle. But as we've seen subsequently with better images, with still images, you can see that this is very, very much a foul. Instead, they double down on on you know their initial point of view. You would have more respect for somebody who said, you know what, I was watching it, I got that wrong, but here we are, I've seen it again, uh, my opinion has changed. Instead of farming for fucking engagement on Twitter, which may be part of their job now. Maybe that's part of their contract. Maybe that's part of what Sky want to do. But I think we're all intelligent enough to deal with better. Yeah, and it would be really interesting to see if someone decided to take a different tack with their presentation around football. Um, You know, I'd be surprised, but I'd love to see it Mm. a slightly more... Uh, cerebral <laughs> approach, um, but yeah, I don't know that you know. I think people are led by the masses, really. It, I did like yeah. this from uh, Alistair Wood, who's at Ali Boy eighty two. He says, "Vardly morning, chaps. Given the only major media presence outside the Arsenal sphere who seems to be talking sense on the officiating in our last game is Mark Goldbridge. Can we assume the apocalypse is Im- imminent?" Yeah, I think we're done for really. <laughs> Bloody uh, hell! <laughs> yeah, I like Mark Goldberg's stuff. I have to say, like, I find him very entertaining. It's, um, it's performance art at the highest level. He's, it is, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. Um, a heavy dose of kind of Alan Partridge influence in his in his uh, <laughs> streaming, I think. But, um, I mean, another point about VR that I did just want to sort of squeeze in is that I think we have to consider the way it, impacts how referees ref on the field you know mm. would, would would those referees have it in their mind well we'll give the goal for newcastle and, and if it's wrong i've got the guys behind me mm-hmm. they'll bail me out kind of thing is there a kind of dereliction of responsibility from both sides i think the impact of the video on how officials act on the field is something that we haven't particularly understood uh, very well it's, as yet. Yeah, probably true, but it's probably like being a tightrope walker, you know, and you're yeah. going between two skyscrapers and your safety net, well, it'll work three times out of ten, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not much. That's not what I mean, though. Like, yeah. th- these officials may have, at St. James's Park, may have relied on that safety net, mm. um, consciously or subconsciously, and it didn't work for them. But I, yeah, look, I don't know how much more we're going to do on the on the officiating. I That's do it. Think that, Let's try and. I, I do just think it's worth saying that where Arsenal did strike a chord and where Arteta did strike a chord, you know, for a, t- a league that does profess itself to be the best, it is kind of absurd that the officiating is substandard. And when you think of the resource 
that is available to the Premier League, the amount of money swilling around it. I think clubs will have to, I mean, the Premier League is effectively run by the clubs, but have to effectively take this into their own hands. I mean, how much budget from every club's available wealth would it take to radically overhaul the refereeing environment? Probably a very small amount. Relatively. Uh, maybe, but I think they're operating at a, a significant profit anyway. Um, I mean, PGMOL apparently turned over something in the region of £28 million last year. Salaries of uh, £11.5 million. That's uh, according to some numbers dug up by our friend West Antone. Um, so I don't think it's a question of resources per se. But I'm sure if you asked every club, would you, you know, throw in a million quid for better uh, officiating... They probably all say, uh, "Yep, yeah, let's let's have a go at that," or or a million less rather than actually pay anything. You get like a million less from the broadcasting, or whatever. But uh, you know, I, I don't know how we fix it. I don't know how we I don't know how we go forward. Um, do you have a question that's not related to uh, officiating and VAR? Mm, well, there weren't many. <laughs> yeah, there weren't. Uh, I've got a couple, so I just want to see if you've got one too. Yeah, so. I've got a few. I've got a few. That's about my count. Um, what about this one? Mr. Beer, it's time for one of those. So, <laughs> you use the words, this is you, Andrew. You use the words almost arrogant to describe Zinchenko after the West Ham loss. And I thought it was interesting because I had the same thoughts. His demeanour reminded me of that guy at five side who's clearly got some talent, but takes it way too seriously <laughs> and chases the ball around the pitch shouting, yes, gets the ball, fucks up an overly ambitious move and then blames somebody else. Uh, his impact last year was clear, but do you think the inverted trick has been completely figured out? Or do you think he should still be our de facto left back for us to play our best football? I think what's interesting, you know, when we had the discussions around Kieran Tierney and how probably the team had evolved beyond him and that then meant he had to go and leave in order to play football because he just wasn't getting picked. I think we're not quite in the same ballpark when it comes to Zinchenko, but it is interesting that we are now discussing certain games are Zinchenko games and certain games are Tommy Asu games. Saturday against Newcastle, very much a Tommy Asu game. Mm. We brought Zinchenko on at 1-0 down because we thought he might be able to do something creative and unfortunately he couldn't but um you know that's not blaming him for for the loss or anything like that but I do think it is interesting how that's changed I mean last season nobody really knew what to do with Zinchenko when he came into midfield like does someone track him does the winger come inside the winger comes inside then all of a sudden we've got a load of space on the outside where Gabriel Martinelli could be one-on-one -on -one with his fullback which is the whole point, right, of, of shifting, not the whole point, but one of the points of moving Zinchenko around. But I think teams do wise up to the way that you play. They understand what it is you do, and they themselves can counteract that um, and maybe try and exploit the space that you leave, right? Yeah. So I, 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 I'm not as down on Zinchenko as some people. I didn't like his performance against West Ham. But I still think he's an excellent player. I thought he was really, really good in the Manchester City game, for example. I don't think we win that game, um, you know, w without him in that position. Uh, has his effectiveness as that kind of inverted fullback or whatever, has it decreased? Yes, I think it has for the reasons I've explained. And I do think that there are certain games where Tommy Asu is, is going to be the best option. You know, if you're going to Anfield away, who are you going to pick 
at left back. I'm picking Tommy Asu every day of the week if he's fit, you know? Um, so is he going to be our de facto left back? No, I think it is going to change game by game depending on who's available and who's fit. But I still think he's got plenty to contribute. I still think he's a, a very good player. So the the speed with which sometimes we write players off when they go through a bad period is not alarming, but, you know, I do... Like Tommy Asu, we're talking about in glorious, in glowing terms, right? But it wasn't long ago, perhaps during the summer, where people were saying, well, he's never fit. We should move on. Here we are down the line, and he's a very important player for us. And I still think that's true of Zinchenko. Yeah, and form is a thing. And I think Tommy Asu's form is probably better than Zinchenko's right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we say some games are Tommy Asu games, some games are Zinchenko games. I would have been very curious to find out how many of these were Jury and Timber games. Yes, uh, good point. That's a big factor to consider. I think quite a lot of them might well have been Jury and Timber games, the way he started. Um, and just one other point is Zinchenko, which, I mean, I was sort of thinking about writing about it at some point, but I kind of think, when are we ever going to see this guy play midfield? Um, mm. You know, in the absence of people like Thomas Partey and... Martin Odegaard, I do kind of think, if not now, when? Yeah, true. I mean, that is very curious to see it. Yeah, Arteta doesn't seem that open to it at all. Nope. Um, But that is where he can operate and has operated a lot in his career, especially at international level. And it was something that I thought about maybe before this game, that if you didn't play Jorginho, could you have played a... Uh, a midfield of Rice, Zinchenko and Odegaard. I was assuming Odegaard was going to be fit pre-game. I mean, speaking of form, here's a couple, and you mentioned Jury and Timber. Aaron Lagunner on the Discord said, what the fuckly morning, guys? I've noticed Ben White being subbed a lot more in recent weeks. He's always been a 90-minute, 38-game-a-season kind of player until now. To me, he seemed fairly jaded in recent weeks, and his link with Saka and Odegaard, which has always been so smooth and almost telekinetic at times, has looked clunky and disjointed. Do you think this is a dip in form, some tired legs, or a larger issue connected to our attacking output? And just a sort of a double... Um, uh, Double header on this one. Uh, Greenkeeper JHB says, uh, Hello, Andrew and James. The former of Bukayo at present, just a blip. Something to be concerned about. Looks a bit tired, maybe, and perhaps carrying an injury. Any thoughts on that? So deal with our right-hand side, James. Well, uh, you know, you touched on it there, but Julian Timber's absence, I think, means that Ben White's probably having to play a lot more minutes than anticipated, you know, because it means mm-hmm. Tommy Asu's over at left back a lot of the time. Um, so they can't quite share the games as much as they might have expected or liked. Um, ben White played, of course, didn't he, against West Ham, uh, 90 minutes in the week, which not everyone in the first team did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting as well. I th- Sometimes it takes someone who doesn't really watch your team regularly to point something out and during the Newcastle game on Saturday a friend texted me and said wow Bukai Saka really doesn't like using Ben White on the overlap does he and I thought oh does he not (laughs) and I sort of hadn't really twigged it myself but interestingly they just saw Saka not really combining with White a great deal now sometimes that works to good effect and White is the decoy and he's there to take a marker away but yeah, maybe some of that chemistry isn't quite in place. Um, 
I think the absence of Thomas Partey may have a factor in that as well. I know, you know, we think of it as Odegaard, White and Saka, but a lot of time Partey spent in that kind of right half space, playing from deeper and helping build up the play, connect things. Um, I don't know. I think just like a lot of aspects of Arsenal's play, it just doesn't seem to be quite at the level it was last season. Yeah, what it's not think? It's not bad, is it? But it's, no. it's a bit six out of ten. It's a bit just normal, average. And, and the thing about Ben White and Bakayo Saka last season was that they were giving you sevens and eights and sometimes more pretty much every week, you know, defensively and offensively. And I think there's no question Bakayo Saka had a very, very quiet game against Newcastle. Um, I was speaking to Clive a bit yesterday and he, he reckons he has an injury, something wrong with his groin that he couldn't run in the last 10 minutes. I've got to go back and, and have a look at that again. Um, it wouldn't be a surprise, obviously, if Saka was, was carrying something. And I, you know, I do think that there is a, a very heavy burden on Ben White at right back. I know Tommy Asu went over there and played there, but when you're talking about Tommy Asu as one of your alternate left backs, it does leave Ben White sort of out on his own at right back. You know, because the next option, if it's not Tamiyasu, is Cedric, and that's no fucking option at all. So this is where, you know, hopefully a return for Jurian Timber would be very, very useful. But until then, we're going to have to sort of plow through it a bit. You know, that is just what players have to do. Um, so I hope they can find some form quickly. Yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, yeah, a bit of a worry if, if there is any issue there. Mm. Well, listen... Similar point. Dinaronya on Twitter said, uh, most teams rotate their wingers in games to keep them fresh. We seem to do this the least. Do you think this is catching up with our wide men, given the lack of rotation over the last couple of seasons? I think it's hmm. interesting. If you think about Man City, for example, you know, they do mix it up quite a lot. And so do Liverpool by and large. Well, I mean, Liverpool don't mix up Mohamed Salah. True. So that he, is true. He plays every game when he's fit. Um, they do maybe mix things up on the other side. Hmm. Um, yeah, they've got a nice selection, haven't they? They've got hmm. Diaz, they've got Jota, they've got Gappo, they've got Nunez. So they can kind of throw all those guys in the mix. I, I do wonder if there is something to the... The effectiveness of the wingers, depending on who is playing at centre forward, mm -hmm. you know, like I know Jesus's injuries are frustrating people, and I get that completely. But I think the the dynamic that he brings to the front three is something that energizes the other two. And the other day, I don't know how well Saka and Martinelli connect with Eddie and Kedia. And I don't mean that to be like critical of Eddie or those other two. I just don't see that it's quite the same as that, you know, um, which is why I sort of wondered about Havertz in that position and whether that might be something that they, uh, they can connect with a little bit more. Um, I mean, the reality is that on the right, we don't have anyone as good as Bakayo Saka. Reese Nelson, all right, Martinelli can play on the right, but but that's it. So we don't really have the ability to rotate and mix it up on the right, on the left. Like I don't, Martinelli, 
is just so there's so much potential there. He's somebody who gives you so much down that left-hand side. And again, nobody else uh, can really give you that. Trossard doesn't give you that. There was a question I had about this as well. Maybe it's, uh, if I can find it here. Um, it was about wingers. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. Uh, yeah, it comes from JD, who's at JD underscore underscore eight. And he said, recent signings, was the mistake not getting an out-and-out winger? Mudrick was the prime target. We got Trossard, who's not a winger and not a centre-forward. And I think, you know, Trossard has been good for us, but he's not a winger and he's not really a centre-forward. And I think he's sort of, uh, you know, he's, um, how would you, is he an impact player? Is he one of those finishers, maybe, that Mikel Arteta talks about a bit more than like a nailed-on starter? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he wasn't at St. James's, but he has been many mm. times for us in the past. Um, I think it's an interesting discussion point because I don't know how much you saw of Man City this weekend, but obviously they signed Doku uh, in the summer and he had a tremendous yeah. game for them. Uh, looks that. looks to have like brought a really different dynamic to their group of forwards. And I would actually agree with that second question there. He, he took the words out of my mouth, really. I think when we look at the Mudrick deal we all view that as kind of a bullet dodged to an extent you know he's obviously not had the impact he would have wanted in English football and it was a huge amount of money but I don't think it means we don't need someone of that type mm. we really do I think we really would benefit from an alternate to uh, Saka and Martinelli if it was someone who could play both sides and offer like a similar level of threat. Yeah. I think it would just be invaluable. And look, you might still pick Bukayo Saka every game because he's our Mo Salah or what have you. And he's our guy and he plays all those minutes. But just having the option to rotate or substitute or replace when injured. Well, that's it, isn't it? You know, I mean, I, I love Bukayo Saka. Everyone loves Bukayo Saka, but it's not against the law to say... Mm, he didn't play well in this game. Maybe I'll take him off after yeah. seventy minutes, which I, I think I is. Love a, Saka, but he's never done. He's never had a season like Mo Salah has had for the majority of his. No, no I agree. I agree. And and look, part of why he stays on, even when he has quiet games, is he has the ability to do something. As we've talked about already this season, like you know, there was a point where he's a goal involvement in basically every game. Right, yeah. When we've talked about him not necessarily playing as well as we know he can, so you can understand why a manager leans into that. But it's probably easier to make the decision, like in a game against Newcastle on on Saturday, to take him off or to take Martinelli off if you have a viable option that you've got a lot of faith in. And I don't know that Mikel Arteta has a great deal of faith in Reese Nelson. He didn't come off in this one, not even for the last few minutes. Um. I think that tells you something. I think it tells you something about the needs of the squad. So I agree with you. Uh, you know, one of those players, you know, somebody who who can match Saka and Martinelli for technical ability and product and maybe pace mm -hmm. would be definitely very, very useful. Though. Very useful. I definitely think so. Someone can run in behind. Mm. I think you make a good point about Jesus' availability as well. You know, Liverpool were the model really for great wide forwards with... Mane and Salah, but the job that Roberto Firmino did for those guys yeah. was huge. And they were fortunate that he was largely available to help them do that. 
Right. I think we had better leave it there and get this podcast out for people um, because, yeah, why not? I think we've done pretty much everything we need to do in this one in terms of VAR and <laughs> officials and all the rest of it and throwing in a so. bit of football at the end for those people who actually like the game of football too, apart from uh, all the refereeing stuff. So... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, who knows what madness will be thrown up in uh, the coming days. We've got Sevilla, of course, this week, and then um, Burnley at the weekend. So plenty to get our teeth into. Join us over on Patreon a bit later on. We're going to do our Premier League podcast, The 30. That will be out for you um, a bit later on this afternoon. We were going to wait for the game today, but every time we wait, that lot seem to win. So Right, yeah, you don't want to be talking about Spurs anyway, so... Well, that, that's the thing. We don't. Whenever they win, I don't talk about them. So uh, there's only been nine games a season so far, or nine games a week so far this season. So hopefully there'll be 10 uh, this week. Um, right, that's it. Let's go. Uh, thank you, as always, for being with us. And uh, I don't know what else to say. We'll catch you on the next one. Fuck Magpies forever, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Bye-bye. <laughs>